is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour. Shares in the company Arafura Resources have absolutely bolted today off the back of a federal government announcement to spend over $200 million developing a rare earths industry in Australia. You know, this is a, a, a significant uh, matter, not just for Arafura, but also for Australia. It's a development of a whole new industry here in Australia. Yeah, what does this mean for Arafura's project to the north of Alice Springs? We'll be talking about this soon. Also today, a look at the possibilities to recycle and even mine your old mobile phones. I don't think we need research. I just think we need entrepreneurs with a vision to jump in and have a go with this. Um, that, that's how I've seen grassroots industries in the US and Canada and Europe kick up and start, and they're doing quite well. And a new alliance of animal welfare organisations has been formed just ahead of the federal election. What are its aims? What will it be pushing for? You'll find out before 1.30. This is the Country Hour. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk about the wet season. Because for a lot of Territorians, the wet season has kind of gone missing in action. The month of February just gone was one of the top ends driest on record. And March is not going very well either. I even saw some dragonflies on the way to work this morning, which apparently is not a good sign. For Northern Territory cattle stations, the country is getting dry, and this is a real concern. Justin Dyer is from Hayfield Station, which is a bit south of Daly Waters. Uh, Justin, what would be your summary of the wet season so far? The wet season this far can only be described as disappointing. we thought uh, with the La Nina system uh, that we'd get, you know, at least an average wet. Uh, but, yeah, it's been far from that. It's as, it's as dry as I've seen it uh, ever here. We've had a touch over eight inches. I think we've had, yeah, nine inches for the, for the wet so far. So, yeah, uh, that's our wet pretty much done and dusted. We're, um, we'll start mustering and... and uh, take advantage of the the good prices that are around at the moment and bunker down for what's probably going to be a pretty tough end of the dry. So you're already moving cattle? Yeah, 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 we are. We've uh, started mustering last week and and we'll make some sales and we just don't have the grass. Uh, There just hasn't been any growth, especially on the black soil. Uh, No growth, what to speak of, really, at all there. So um, we'll just truck them out and and do what we can to to hold breeders through. Even so, we'll still have to do a a fairly heavy cull on our breeders um, in anticipation of a pretty tough October, especially if we don't get a early break. As you said, those cattle will be worth good money, very good money, but I assume you'd prefer the rain, would you? Oh, we sure would. We'd really much prefer... You know, an average season. This is this is going to be four pretty tough ones for us here in a row, which is 
kind of unheard of in the 50 years or so that uh, the dyes have been here. We, we've never seen a dry spell back to back to back like like it has been since 1819. We got a 8 inch wet there, and then a 12 inch, and then an 18 inch, and we're back to another 8 inch wet. So it's really sort of getting them back to back is is making it tougher and tougher. So yeah, we're um, we're uh, pretty um, cautious about um, the end of the year and, and how we're going to get breeders through. Yeah, We're about to speak to the Weather Bureau to get a long-range forecast. What, uh, what would be a best-case scenario for you at the moment? Well, Matt, I think um, we'd really need 8 or 10 inches here now to, to make any sort of season of it. Uh, anything will do. The red country will get some response out of any sort of rain now with the, on the red country. But you know the black soil country really, you know the cracks are still very deep. Um, it's going to take at least at least five or six inches to to do anything at all out there now. So unless we get something like that, um, yeah, we're just planning on uh, not much at all coming, and and we'll just get in. Continue mustering and, and get weaners off and get prepared for the end of the year. And you're not alone, I assume, Justin? No, 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 no. It's quite dry. There's there's fair areas that are that are very dry. You know, even as far as Catherine and to the west and the east. Um, yeah, as far as you want to go to the border to the west, probably is is dryish. And well, most people I've talked to. Uh, well under half their average so yeah it's a big it's a pretty big big dry area yeah i just know i just think our feed costs are going to be pretty massive this year yeah Mm. but there's plenty of hay around so at the moment so that's that's good well fingers crossed you you do get that rain um thanks for sharing time on, on what's been a busy day for you no worries at all matt it's a pleasure justin dyer from hayfield station bit south of daly waters and a bit dry, already moving cattle. The wet season, it has gone missing in action for so many Northern Territory cattle stations. Joining us now is Greg Browning, who is a senior climatologist with the Weather Bureau. Uh, Greg, the wet season, what's gone wrong? Yeah, it uh, hasn't gone too well for some of those areas that have had a couple of really dry wet seasons that we, we thought were behind us. Um, they're smacked back into it now, so yeah, parts of the the Daly, um, you know, Tanami, a lot of those sort of central NT areas have definitely um, had a pretty poor wet season so far. And what's what's driving that? What's gone wrong? Well, I, I think um, probably two main things. So we haven't really had any decent uh, lows move apart, uh, move over that part of the territory. So they often can dump, you know, a good proportion of the wet season rainfall just in one one pass. So we haven't had that, and that in turn is sort of related to the relatively weak monsoons that we've seen develop across the territory. So. We've had a couple of um, periods of active monsoonal activity, but they've really only affected the uh, the northern coast and they haven't really penetrated too far. So, you know, you'd expect at least to have one good monsoon burst that's, you know, uh, worked its way south of the, the top end, but we really haven't seen anything like that. So those good rain-producing systems just have uh, gone AWOL these uh, last few months. So for those in desperate need of a drop, do you have any good news for them? Well, 
I mean, we are getting obviously towards the uh, the end of of the wet season, but there is still some hope. So we have seen a Madden Julian oscillation strengthen in uh, recent days, and that is forecast to move over our region. So that certainly um, increases the odds of seeing some decent rainfall. It's still a little bit far out in the sort of the the weather model sort of forecasting cycle to say whether we will see. Um, monsoonal conditions and uh, widespread rainfall develops. Certainly some of the climate models are suggesting it could be quite wet across much of the territory um, over the next month or so, uh, but there's still it's still a little bit far out to say whether we will actually see monsoon flow make its way into the territory and then will it make it way, its way far enough down to some of those central areas that have seen um, the, the dry conditions. But I guess the good news is with the, with a uh, Madden Julian oscillation and potentially you know monsoonal somewhere in the Australian region that could uh, mean a, a low could brew up and that could move over to the area or you know we're obviously primed then potentially for some uh, active monsoon periods across the territory. So the MJO is due to arrive sort of next week, is it? Yeah, it's looking like next week. So it's just sort of starting to move into our region. So, you know, it tracks across the the equator sort of from west to east. So it's just going to move into the western parts. And we've already seen a bit of activity there with our tropical cyclone Billy develop over the Indian Ocean in recent days. So it should keep tracking a bit further east and remaining relatively strong. So, you know, in the next week or two is probably going to be the prime time when, you know, we would hope to see some, uh, you know, decent activity and that, you know, that moist monsoonal flow starts to develop um, certainly around northern Australia and hopefully over the actual territory. Is the next two weeks the last chance from or a monsoonal mm, burst? Uh, pr- not necessarily. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, things can dry out pretty quickly once we get to April, but, you know, it's it's not out of the question that we could get a, a later burst and uh, the, the Madden Julian oscillation has been a bit all over the place and that, that's part of the reason as well, you know, that we just haven't seen uh, the good rains this, this season and it hasn't really done its sort of regular trips around the globe. But uh, so it could, you know, uh, even if this one doesn't work out fantastically, we could see another burst or we could see two good bursts. So it's, it's not out of the question, but certainly I'd say, you know, by mid-April, um, the odds start to drop off pretty rapidly as we start to move into that transition period. And has the record flooding in parts of the east been a part of this story? Has, has the east dragged some of the moisture away from the north? No, I don't think so, really. So, I mean, that's a, a pretty much got to do with La Nina combined with some of the weather systems that we've seen over the east. Uh, traditionally, La Nina is actually good news for the Territory and, you know, parts of Central Australia, including Southern NT, have done reasonably well this, this wet season. Um, but I think it's just the luck of the draw, you know, we just haven't seen those good monsoon bursts penetrate far into the Territory or, you know, some decent lows to go over land and drop a lot of rain. Uh, so, no, as, as far as I can tell, there are separate sort of okay. um, systems and events. All right. Fingers crossed for next week. Yeah, good good luck to everyone who needs the rain. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. No worries. See you, Matt. That is Greg Browning, who's a senior climatologist with the Weather Bureau, joining us this afternoon. This is the Country Hour. It is 19 to 1. And, and yes, the missing wet season, very much an issue in the top end. From about, what, Tennant Creek North, I think it's fair to say. Got a text here from Alex in Alice Springs who says, Hello, Matt, and here we are 
in the green centre with tall, thick grass smothering the country as far as the eye can see after one of our wettest summers on record. We now face a severe fire risk in the not-too-distant future, I reckon, says Alex on 0487991057. Yes, Central Australia has had a very wet few months, but the top end, looking dry and in a bit of trouble. Let's hope for next week, eh? Let's hope. Now, as we go to air this afternoon, shares in the company Arafura Resources are up nearly 19%. This is the company that wants to start up a rare earth mine to the north of Alice Springs. What's happened to make the share price bolt? I'll tell you all about it next. It is 14 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. The federal government has committed $240 million to help develop a rare earths mineral industry in Australia and to reduce the nation's reliance on China. This announcement has had an immediate impact on the company Arafura Resources. So it's the company looking to start up a rare earths mine on Aileron Station to the north of Alice Springs. And it's set to receive around $30 million to help build Australia's first rare earths separation plant. Now, this news, this announcement by the government has seen the share price for Arafura jump by 18%. Managing Director Gavin Lockyer says the funding is a huge boost to companies that are trying to get projects up and running. Oh, it means a great deal. On top of the already uh, $300 million that uh, has been made available to us through Export Finance Australia and, and um, the NAFE facilities, uh, this, this $30 million, uh, it's slightly different uh, set up. The, the previous facilities or the other facilities I mentioned are debt facilities. This is actually a grant. So uh, for every $2 we spend, uh, the government will put in a dollar um, towards, uh, and specifically in this grant, it's towards the separation plant, so the very back end of our process. And, uh, and you know, by the government's uh, contributing towards the capital cost of that, it obviously reduces the amount that we have to go out and raise. So it's, um, it, it, it really um, pushes us along nicely. How expensive is that separation plant? Yeah, it's about $100 million just for the separation plant. Um, and, you know, you put that in perspective, it's about 10% um, direct, and that's direct cost, uh, 10% of the overall capital cost. So, you know, it's a, not, a, not an insignificant portion, um, but it's where all the real um, value add is, is, is done to our product. So product that feeds into uh, the rare earth separation plant is typically a mixed rare earth product. Uh, and if you don't build the separation plant, then that product will have to go offshore, namely China, for, for downstream processing. Uh, and and so, you know, this is a, a, a significant um, uh, matter, not just for our, our Afira, but also for Australia. It's a development of a whole new industry here in Australia. When will you see this money in the pocket and when can we expect to see it getting spent? Um, look, this um, money directly relates to construction. Um, so obviously, uh, we've got a timeline on that. We have to have um, been uh, have commenced commenced construction uh, by uh, by 2023. Uh, so that certainly fits within our timeline, and uh, and that money will be spent towards the back end. We we can probably 
uh, build the separation plant slightly ahead of where we're currently scheduling it now that we've got the funding uh, in place. Um, but it, it, it's going to be spent over the next two to three years. Our, our forecast is to be in production by the end of uh, 2024. Gavin, I mean, the, the Nolans project just north of Alice Springs, you guys require roughly $1 billion worth of investment to get that one going. So, I mean, I guess I'm asking, is $240 million granted to the industry as a whole, is that a lot of money in the scheme of things? Look, um, for for Australia, it's a it's a massive injection. This is typically something that Australian governments have not done in the past. If we were, uh, say, in, in Germany or Korea or Japan, uh, they've got government agencies that are well established and set up uh, that um, will fund and provide uh, debt support or other, other measures for industries that are bringing in critical materials that are critical to their manufacturing. So, you know, you might... <coughs> Whilst we've got a billion dollars uh, of capital to build and the 250 might seem like a drop in the ocean, this is the second round of the MMI. There are other successful applicants in the first round. Uh, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head how much that came to, but it was a, it was a uh, not insignificant amounts. And again, on top of the uh, funds that have been set aside through Export Finance Australia and Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund for critical minerals, I think the Australian government has done a pretty good job um, compared to where we've historically been on this uh, downstream and modern manufacturing initiatives. So there are comments about this funding uh, being aimed to take some reliance off China when it comes to using rare earth minerals. In your opinion, do we have the capacity to sort of, you know, take a, take a bit of weight off China? Absolutely. Um, look, the only existing rare earth oxide producer outside of China uh, is currently an Australian company, uh, which currently mines in WA and processes Malaysia. But they've got plans to move that back on shore uh, in the in the coming years. And um, between that company and and Arafura, we will represent uh, over ten percent of global supply. So this is a you know it's a big big step for Australia into a into a new and exciting. Um, uh, industrial process. This is not just digging material up and shipping it out. This is actually doing downstream um, processing here in Australia. Why should taxpayers be confident in this spending? Well, I think uh, you've only got to look at uh, geopolitical situation at the moment where globally uh, companies are trying to diversify supply chains and we're seeing it with the semiconductor industry and we've seen it now with in the rare earth uh, magnet industry as well where the world has been wholly reliant on one one supplier, uh, and this has got nothing to do where that supplier is coming from. It's just that um, it's not good practice to have um, or be reliant on one supplier. So, um, you know, the world does need diversification, and Australia is enriched in uh, these rare earth minerals. So let's make it take advantage of our natural resources for the benefit of all Australians. That's the Managing Director of Arafura Resources, Gavin Lockyer, speaking there to Hugo Ricard-Bell. It's the company looking to start up a rare earth mine to the north of Alice Springs and now is getting some government money to help build Australia's first rare earth separation plant. G'day, I'm Bill West. I've uh, been skippering trawlers in the NPF for 43 years and you're listening to The Country Hour. If you just take a moment to think about all of the technology in your life, you know, iPhones, TVs, 
laptops, the list goes on, and a lot of those devices require rare earths. At the moment in Australia, when these items break down and we've got no use for them, they sadly mostly end up in landfill. In some overseas countries, though, this e-waste gets recycled and even mined for those minerals all over again. According to Jan Quark from the engineering company Hatch, Australian mining companies really should be looking to do the same. It's a big deal. It's a big deal in terms of the solid waste and the landfill that we create, but it's also a big deal in terms of the value we're throwing away. There's around $80 billion worth of battery materials that are, that are thrown away in the form of e-waste and electronics waste that is kind of a shame. It's a pity. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of carbon dioxide mining copper, lithium, platinum metals, rare earths that uh, we already have in the economy and are actually quite recoverable these days. So it's, it's as much an opportunity as, as a waste. Is that number uh, an annual figure for Australia or is it you know, across the world? Yeah, that, that, that number is global. Um, the, the number for Australia is, I think it's of the order of 50 million tonnes of e-waste, which is quite a bit. And, and that e-waste will contain you know, all the things that we're searching for and exploring for and, and investing in mines to, to do that, uh, which we need. I'm not, I'm not saying that that mining activity is not important. But there's another source of, of metal that is valuable that, that we shouldn't be throwing away. We should be gathering that uh, as well. We talk about recycling day to day household items, things like the milk carton or um, the newspaper or what, whatever it may be. Why aren't we as good at recycling e waste, do you think? Isn't that a good question? We, we don't have a good track record of recycling in Australia. Every year it's a little bit better, but it's not, you know, the year-over-year improvement that you'd hope to see. I think traditionally it's because there hasn't really been a business case in there. In my, whatever I've been working now, 27, 28 years in industry, I, I've seen that when there's not a lot of business case, it's very hard to get, you know, important projects done because there's no money to be made in there ultimately. But when there is a business case, things go very, very fast. I think we're at a unique opportunity right now where suddenly the the value of those electronics materials uh, and battery materials is is high enough that it's economic to recycle and recover from waste in ways that didn't make any sense two decades ago, three decades ago. So, you know, the business decisions that were made in the past made sense for the economic conditions then, but it's different today. And some companies are seeing that. So how are they doing that? Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it, right? It's pretty complex metallurgy, uh, but it has been done. There, there's, a, there's probably the best case study in the world is a company called Boliden in Sweden that has been doing this for easily a decade now. And they've kind of figured it out. They were entrepreneurs. They figured there was a market. They figured they could do good business doing it. And, you know, cleanly, they've built smelters, they've built hypermet facilities that can treat uh, waste and recover these valuable products. And it and what it does is it supplements their mines. So they run both the, the copper, the, the zinc, the lead, the other things you buy from Boliden will be a mixture of recycled and virgin material. 
and and that's the same thing that, that will happen here eventually to the to the progressive mining companies. You've said that it's a complex process. Is it yeah. a viable process for a country like Australia and, and companies yeah. like BHP and FMG Rio Tinto? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no reason why it wouldn't. In fact, we have advantages. We have a bit of a disadvantage. We don't have quite the volume of waste that you know highly populated areas like China or Europe or the US would have. But we have an abundance of, first of all, the skills required and the metallurgical skills to operate facilities like that. We have people that understand the metals markets. And we have, most importantly, we have an abundance of renewable power that other places don't have. We've talked about the the viability uh, and the you know the means I suppose that that a lot of companies in Australia have. So I mean, it sounds like it could happen. Uh, it sounds like there could be interest in it happening. Will it happen? Do you think we will see a change? And and what would we need for that change to begin? What would be the catalyst? The um, the catalyst is actually high well high demand and high prices for uh, battery materials, and that's kind of happening. So there's already things happening that create a jumpstart for this. Probably the second catalyst would be creating a discussion around this that people recognize that there's multiple ways to produce metals and profit from these high prices we're seeing, and at the same time, you know, have a positive impact on climate change. I don't think we need research. I just think we need entrepreneurs with a vision to jump in and have a go with this. Um, that, that's how I've seen grassroots industries in the US and Canada and Europe kick up and start, and they're doing quite well. That is Jan Kwak, who is the managing director of the engineering company Hatch, speaking there to Michelle Stanley about the opportunities to recycle, even mine, e-waste happens overseas, why don't we see it here in Australia? I've got a text here from someone saying dragonflies and rabbits are sure signs of the impending dry season. However, power and water on the ABC this morning seems to be expecting another increase in rain from late next week. Sounds like power and water's got its eyes and hopes on that MJO as well. Uh, We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time. But now let's go to the newsroom. It is one o'clock here on the ABC. G'day, it's Brent Murdoch. I'm the uh, Director and General Manager of Vista Gold. I look after the Mount Todd project and we always listen to the country out. That's the go. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. A new alliance of animal welfare organisations has been formed. It comes ahead of a federal election. What is this group pushing for? What are its aims? You'll find out soon. We've been talking about the wet season on the Country Hour today. It's gone missing in action for so many Northern Territory cattle stations. We heard earlier from Justin Dyer at Hayfield Station near Daly Waters. It's apparently looking pretty dry at his place. Oh, the wet season this far is, can only be described as disappointing. We thought with the La Nina system uh, that we'd get, you know, at least an average wet. Uh, but, yeah, it's been far from that. It's as, it's as dry as I've seen it uh, ever here. We've had a touch over eight inches I think we've had, yeah, nine inches for the 
for the wet so far. So, yeah, uh, that's our wet pretty much done and dusted. Mm, Justin Dyer on the program in the first half. And I got a text from someone saying there's dragonflies around. A sure sign of the impending dry season. Oh, let's hope not. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Do you sign up to the whole dragonfly thing, Billy Lynch? No, I think it's a bit deceptive, the, the dragonfly thing myself. Yep. I think there's enough evidence over the years that sometimes the dragonflies, well, they rock up and you get huge rains sometimes. Yeah. I think they blow in when the easterlies are blowing and... You know, of course, we associate the dry season with the, the easterly, the mm. southeasterlies, but when you get the easterlies in the wet season, sometimes they can blow the dragonflies in as well. At least that's my theory. <laughs> no, sounds good. Uh, we heard earlier on from one of your colleagues about the possibility of the MJO swinging into action next week and delivering some rain. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Uh, in the shorter term, how's the rest of the week looking, Billy? Yeah, look, I mean, we're not seeing any widespread rainfall to forecast. It's just that patchy rain that we'll get with showers and thunderstorms. So um, across the top end, sure, yep, we'll continue to get these um, isolated showers and thunderstorms pushing through, generally building over the Arnhem District and then pushing towards the daily during the afternoon and evening. Um, We are seeing the humidity uh, increase through central districts today and tomorrow um so by tomorrow yeah there may be enough humidity to get some showers and thunderstorms right down to alice springs um so obviously that will include the barkley and um as you mentioned before the daily waters area but just isolated showers and storms it's you know just hit and miss kind of stuff so not going to bring a lot of rainfall hot day for so many parts in central australia when can they expect a cool change? Yeah, look, really hot conditions down there. Um, low 40s or high 30s. Um, you know, rabbit flats already hit 42. Um, there is a, a weak cool change that's going to push across the south on Friday. Uh, so we'll see temperatures, you know, maybe go back to the mid 30s. Um, but that's not going to push much far north than Alice Springs, unfortunately. So going to continue to remain in the high 30s, low 40s through the Barclay and the Tanami for probably the next seven days at least. Okay. Coastal waters for the next few days, what can fishers expect? Yeah, um, the easterly winds continuing, um, generally 10 to 15 knots. Uh, we've still got that very weak tropical low to the north of the Tiwis at the moment. So for today, uh, there could be 15 to 20 knots north of the Tiwi Islands. But um, yeah, for the rest of the week, probably easing back to around 10 to 15 knots. Yeah. Yes, on the radars, it's it's so obvious that there's a fair bit of rain well, well to the north of the Northern Territory. And sadly, it just hasn't been drawn south enough. No, no. Well said. No. Yep. Anything else we need to be aware of? Uh, no, I mean, I guess it's not going to bring a lot of rainfall, but any storms that develop across the top end could produce some damaging wind gusts. Um, that's probably the only other thing to add. To keep an eye out for, Rodio, then. Have a lovely afternoon, Billy. All right, thanks, Matt. Cheers. This week on Landline, the young people giving it their all on an outback station. The people are what make the place and break the place, but, um... (laughs) 
hopefully that doesn't happen, but uh, yeah, the team and the crew is, is what go, gets the job done. And the vital importance of tree hollows, natural or artificial for many Australian animals. That's Landline, 12.30 Sunday on ABC TV. Yeah, Landline this Sunday is going to be an absolute beauty. Keep your eyes peeled for lots of wonderful pictures and stories, care of the crew at Newcastle Water Station in the Territory. That's this Sunday on Landline. Hi, my name's Philomena. I'm from Acacia Hills Mango Farm and you're listening to The Country Hour. It is 11 past one. New research led by Charles Darwin University has tried to put an estimate on the huge number of native animals that are killed every year by foxes and feral cats. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. They're pretty incredible and pretty sad numbers, aren't they? Yeah, they are, Matt. Um, There's been a few studies in the past looking at the impact of feral cats on native wildlife, um, but there's actually been none really done on foxes, um, them being one of the other big feral carnivores doing the most damage in Australia. Mm. Um, So this is a pretty big study. Uh, Researchers from all over Australia, um, they've been sifting through the stomachs and the poos of around 50,000 foxes. It's a big um, job. To see what they've been (laughs) eating. Uh, They combine that with some of the research that's already been done on cats. Um, and they found that cats and foxes are killing 1.4 billion mammals, 700 million reptiles, and 500 million birds each year. It's just a staggering amount of native animals um, that's insane. Yeah. that so are you, going each year. So you, you add that up, and we're talking 2.6 billion animals every single year. Yep. Native animals um, in Australia. It's just a, a shocking amount. Um yeah, as we said, uh, Charles Darwin University's Dr. Alison Stober-Wilson, she was the lead author for this study. And she says, while you know, people might have been generally aware um, that foxes and cats killed a lot of animals, uh, just that sheer number was a bit of a shock. So it's a, it's a really big number. And you're right, we have known about the problem of foxes and feral cats for a while, or, or cats generally. Um, but what this does is really allow us to quantify the impact um, and I guess, drive for more landscape scale um, action in terms of yeah, dealing with these populations. So we found that there's 1.7 million foxes in Australia. That's a huge number. So we have some really great fox baiting programs, uh, but they're fairly benign in the landscape and where they are. And we really need to be investing and expanding those programs if we're going to have the impact that we need. Um, in saving this 2.6 billion animals every year. <laughs> Those 2.6 billion animals, what does it mean for the environment that these huge amount of native animals are being killed? What impact is that having? Yeah, so we're, lo- so we're losing our natives. So there's, Australia has one of the worst extinction records with uh, mammals and we've uh, got 34 extinct mammals and a large number of those are tr- attributed to fox and feral cat populations. Um, and so that has flow-on effects in our environment. You know, some of the species that we're losing, they're digging mammals that are really important um, to turning over soil and nutrients, um, really good pollinators, uh, some of our birds, seed dispersal, uh, reptiles keeping down pest animals, uh, like the big goannas keeping down um, mice. You know, there, there's all these kind of interactions that are happening. And when we're losing 
uh, those species from the system, we're losing their functions as well, um, as well as just, you know, let's hope that these animals are still going to be around for future generations to just get to, to see, enjoy. Australia has these really unique uh, native animals, so we really want to protect them and, and definitely dealing with this fox and cat problem is an important step in that. Here in the Territory, uh, what native animals are under the biggest threat from foxes and cats? Yeah, so the the Territory, um, we're lucky that the extent in which foxes are our problem uh, is limited to that arid area, but certainly there's a lot of fox bait baiting happening in areas, for example, around West Macdonald Ranges to to prevent and, and kick back those populations. And, and part of that um, is to protect our central rock rat. Um, and there's also a lot of work going in controlling cats there. If you move up to the north, uh, we have our uh, brush-tailed tree rat, uh, which is not, sorry, rabbit rat, brush-tailed rabbit rat, which is not looking very good at the moment at all in the top end. It's really just on Melbourne Island and there's some evidence there it's declining as well. And feral cats are listed as one of the biggest threats to that species. What more can be done to reduce the impact of ferals on our native animals? Yeah, so there's a few things. So we've talked about baiting. Fox baiting has been shown to work. There are examples where after long-term investment, uh, we can recover and reintroduce species into a system because we've not back foxes. Cats, on the other hand, are trickier and we are um, there's a lot of investment in trying to uh, come up with different baits uh, to try and deal with their... Uh, populations. But I guess one of the things we're probably not emphasising enough is that good habitat is also a really important place to start. So we know that feral cats, for example, can hunt better uh, in really open, cleared landscapes where maybe there's been a big fire or there's overgrazing uh, and that they do better at kind of knocking off our native mammals as well as other animals. Um, because they're able to hunt easier. And then if you have good quality habitat, the animals can recover from that predation pressure as well. So it is targeting these individual predators um, as well as looking at keeping our habitat um, healthy for what's there. Um, there's also one really interesting thing was with the foxes in terms of the mammals that they're eating. They're make, eating more introduced than native mammals um, and there's been evidence where Khaleesi virus has been introduced and fox numbers have just crashed with rabbit numbers because they were such an important food source. So we also can be looking at those introduced prey species um, and making sure we're managing them as well. That is Dr. Alison Stobo-Wilson from Charles Darwin University speaking to Dan Fitzgerald about this report that's been made public today. And what an awful headline, hey? Let this sink in. Foxes and feral cats combined are killing more than 2.6 billion native Australian animals every single year. 2.6 billion of them. On the text, Rob in Wanguri says, Why the hell is the federal government not doing more to stop this? 0487991057 is our text here at the Country Hour. Hi, my name's Philomena. I'm from Acacia Hills Mango Farm and you're listening to The Country Hour. Okay, so a bunch of animal welfare organisations have teamed up and formed 
a new alliance? What are its aims? What will it be pushing for ahead of the next federal election? You'll get to hear from its co-director next after a bit of Marty Robbins. To the town of Alfrey who rode a stranger one fine day Hardly spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip Big iron on his heel It was early in the morning when he rode into the town He came riding from the south side, slowly looking all around. He's an outlaw loose and running, came the whisper from each lip. And he's here to do some business with a big iron on his hip, big iron on his heel. In this town there lived an outlaw by the name of Texas Red. Many men had tried to take him and that many men were dead He was vicious and a killer though a youth of 24 And the notches on his pistol numbered one and nineteen more One and nineteen more Now the stranger started talking made it plain to folks around was an Arizona ranger, wouldn't be too long in town He came here to take an outlaw back alive or maybe dead And he said it didn't matter, he was after Texas Red After Texas Red Wasn't long before the story was relayed to Texas Red but the outlaw didn't worry, man, the tribe of forward day. Twenty men had tried to take him, twenty men had made a slip. Twenty-one would be the ranger with the big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. The morning passed so quickly it was time for them to meet. It was twenty past eleven when they walked out in the street Folks were watching from the windows, everybody held their breath They knew this handsome ranger was about to meet his death About to meet his death There was forty feet between them when they stopped to make their play and the swiftness of the ranger is still talked about today Texas red and not cleared leather for a bullet fairly ripped And the ranger's aim was deadly with the big iron on his hip Big iron on his hip It was over in a moment and the folks had gathered round there before them lay the body of the outlaw on the ground Oh, he might have went on living, but he made one fatal slip When he tried to match the ranger with the big iron on his hip Big iron on his hip Big iron, big iron When he tried to match the ranger with the big iron on his hip Big iron on his 
Marty Robbins on a Wednesday afternoon. Just looking at some of the rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. As you'd expect, not too much to report, unfortunately, during the middle of March. Adelaide River East had 13 millimetres in the gauge. Noonamar Airstrip 7. Warrawee has recorded 16 millimetres. Merganella Airstrip 26. The Merlin Mine, 10 millimetres in the gauge there. And Nutwood Downs has recorded 14. Yo, good afternoon. My name is Patrick White. My name is I'm born and raised in Nolanboy. I work as a head ranger for Sea Country program. And you're listening to Country Hour. Yo, Tapir. A new alliance of animal welfare organisations has formed just ahead of the federal election and says it will be pushing for an overhaul of Australia's animal welfare laws. So this group is called the Australian Alliance for Animals. One of its co-directors is Dr Jed Goodfellow. He says the alliance has got a number of priorities, including the establishment of an independent National Commission for Animal Welfare, the creation of ministerial portfolios for animal welfare. It also wants a transparent process for creating national animal care standards. Dr Goodfellow says the current system is failing to meet community expectations. After a long period of time working in animal welfare policy, we identified that we weren't making any progress and governments were simply not investing sufficiently in producing robust animal welfare standards, nor in terms of monitoring compliance with those standards. So we very much saw a need to unite the animal protection sector to pool our collective resources so that we could get animal welfare well and truly on the political agenda. What do you want to see actually happen on a federal level? There are a number of reforms that we think are really important and they include establishing a more independent governance arrangement for animal welfare. So we would like to see the establishment of a national commission for animal welfare because under current arrangements, animal welfare is very much being neglected and it's not being prioritised in the way the Australian community would like to see. So the Productivity Commission has recommended this reform, so we'll be certainly taking that up and pursuing that key reform with the federal government. State governments have got their own animal protection legislation, for example, in Victoria, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Is the state legislation not good enough, in your opinion? Yeah, that's right. So the states and territories have regulatory responsibility for animal welfare, but there is a a core role for the Australian government to provide leadership and coordination of the various state and territory jurisdictions. So that's what we're calling on the Australian government to do, is to re-engage in that national process to, to ensure that we have consistent animal welfare standards, robust animal welfare standards that reflect both community expectations, but also current animal welfare science as well. So it is a, it's a shared cooperative relationship between federal and state jurisdictions. Some states are doing better than others, and uh, we'll certainly be working at the state level as well. You're speaking a lot about community expectations. How does this organisation and how do you know what the community wants? So we, um, through our membership organisations, do conduct quite regular social research and, and social monitoring and polling of community expectations around animal welfare. And 
And that will happen, you know, on a yearly basis. And we do see very high expectations around certain practices that are still common and, and legal under our current system. So we can see that there's a bit of a disconnect there, and uh, that's the disconnect that we're trying to address. We're effectively going to be acting as a conduit, if you like, between the millions of Australians who care about animal welfare and our political leaders to make sure that our political leaders actually start to listen. Most people would say that they do care about animal welfare, but do you think the general public are aware of what's happening to some farm animals? No, generally awareness is reasonably low when it comes to certain practices that do cause pain, suffering, harm to animals. And uh, and that's the risk, I guess, for animal-based industries is that when consumers and when the general community is made aware of some of the more controversial practices, all of a sudden there's quite a great degree of, of, of shock and there can be anger following that as well. So it's really important for livestock and other animal-based industries to get on the front foot and start to address those practices, start to invest in alternatives to causing animals pain and suffering because consumers and the general community, they're becoming less and less tolerant of those practices. So their, their expectations are increasing and we're going to be ensuring that those expectations are reflected in Australia's laws and policies around animal welfare. Dr Jed Goodfellow, the co-director of the Australian Alliance for Animals. He was speaking there to Jane McNaughton. So who is in this alliance? Some of the core members include Humane Society International Australia, World Animal Protection Australia, the group Voiceless is in this alliance, as is Compassion in World Farming, and a group called Four Paws Australia. It is time now on the Country Hour to head to the sale yards. With all latest prices out of Dublin, South Australia, here's John Traeger. Good afternoon. Numbers remain similar as Aiden has offered 220 live weight and open auction cattle and 45 open auction calves. Quality was extremely mixed, however prices remain generally firm for type and condition. Competition was good with a full field of bars operating. Extremely light yielding heifers of mixed breeds sold from 414 to 432 cents as better bred calves sold from 505 to 580 cents with heavy weights peaking at 560 cents. Grown heifers of mostly heavier weights sold from 416 to 466 cents. Light cows sold from 220 to 260 cents as heavy weights range from 220 to 290 cents. Light yielding bulls sold from 452 to 488 cents with heavy bulls selling from 240 to a top of 328 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you for that, John. In the live export trade, the latest quotes from Nutrient Ag has got feeder steers to Indonesia via the Darwin Port at $5.50 a kilo, feeder heifers at $5.30 a kilo, and I've been told male buffalo are selling for around $2.30 to $2.40 a kilo. At the Darwin Port, there's a couple of live export vessels due in later this week. Keep your eye out for the Girolando Express and the Gadali Express, two flash vessels due in on Friday if all goes to plan. That's all we've got time for on the Country Hour today. Hope you've enjoyed the program. Keep it rural.